hello, hey everybody, and welcome. Um, this is a show where I kept trying to think about how I was going to do the introduction, and I, I wasn't quite sure because it doesn't take long, and it, you don't have to say much in order for us to recognize that we are a divided country. Uh, there is so much uh, happening around what just happened with the election, what's still happening with claims of voter fraud and what's going on there and, and the coronavirus and whether we should wear masks or not and whether we should take a vaccine or not. And it doesn't seem like there are, um, that there's a finite number of issues that we can divide about. It seems like there's an infinite number of issues. And so as Christians, we have to figure out how do we deal with this? Right, and as I, this channel, we're trying to figure out what Christians believe and then how to faithfully live out the biblical worldview. There is a right and wrong way for Christians to respond to the division of our country. And so the goal uh, of today is, is to look about what is causing this division and hopefully present a Christian response to what we can and should be doing as believers. And so joining me, as you see there on the screen, is David French. Uh, he is, and I just lost my notes, uh, I have it here, but I, I could say it by memory and I'd probably miss a few things though. But uh, he's a senior editor at The Dispatch, a columnist for Time. He authored this book right here, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. That's going to be kind of our topic here today. Uh, he's also a New York Times bestselling author, graduated from Harvard Law, where I first heard about him actually was as an attorney for the Alliance Defending Freedom an organization that I know has worked with Summit Ministries and a lot of big religious liberty cases. And I think even you worked with Mike Adams, if I am correct, the uh, late Mike Adams, or at yes, least his case. Yes. Yeah. For uh, seven years. Yeah. yeah. We, had, we bought a case from 2007 to 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. where I originally heard about you was that case that you were fighting for, uh, for Mike Adams. And then uh, lastly, uh, he is a, a former major in the United States Army Reserves and uh, won the Bronze Star. So thank you so much for that service. And thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Well, it's my privilege uh, on both counts. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So uh, I just want to kind of jump in and maybe clear up a few, I don't know, maybe issues of um, sure. you have a position that uh, if I can say this, uh, may not be uh, the most popular uh, because it's more, again, kind of like that middle ground where you're getting attacked from both sides. And so I guess if I could kind of get your thoughts on why you think uh, your position that you present in this book and maybe one that you hold um, kind of receives the criticism that it receives. Well, I'm not, a, I don't belong to the Republican or the Democratic Party right now. And as you'll see, when we talk uh, about our polarization in the United States, America is becoming very, very tribal and is becoming a very particularly toxic kind of tribal. It's called negative partisanship or negative polarization. And so what negative partisanship means is that if I'm a Republican, I'm not so much of a Republican because I love Republican ideas. In fact, there's a huge dispute over what are the core things that the Republican Party stands for. And that dispute's been going on for several, several years. But you're a Republican because you really despise, dislike, perhaps even fear the other party, that the other party is dangerous. And so you can see that if a country is in the grips of negative partisanship, that both parties believe, or members of both parties believe the other party is an, a threat. It, it not just, they're not just wrong, but they're a threat. And, and they're, they're made up of people who have terribly negative characteristics that are hateful, that are ignorant, that are you know, bigoted, then you can see why your position is going to be, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not with me, you're an instrument of our doom. 
because we are the ones that are holding back. We're we're the bulwark. We're the we're the last stand against this opposition that will destroy our country. And you saw a lot of that rhetoric in the 2020 election. You saw a lot of that rhetoric in the 2016 election. And so that sort of, if you're not with me, you're against me mindset means that if, if I don't identify as Republican or Democrat and I agree with, uh, you know, I'm a conservative, I agree with a lot of policy positions put out by the Republicans. I agree with some policy positions put out with, by Democrats. But if you don't identify and if you don't commit to one side or the other, people are going to view you like you're the enemy. Now, how many people, because I think this is a big thing that comes up in your book, and we're, we're talking about, you know, again, like a big aspect, I think, of the solution is this idea of tolerance and loving people, and really what I'm going to get to in the Christian view of seeing people in the image of God. Um, but I think maybe some concerns that I have heard is that, well, that's the extreme people. Uh, that have this idea of this negative partisanship. There are many people who agree with many of the good ideas of the Republican or the Democrat Party. Um, and so how many people would you actually say that uh, hold to this kind of partisan view uh, do have what you described here as this negative uh, partisanship? Well, I think, you know, if you're talking about people who are actual partisans, they actually de identify as Democrats or Republicans, the majority of them hold to, they have a view of negative, they're, they're negative partisans to one degree or another. And they may not be as all in, but to one degree or another, they are negative partisans. So um, that's one of the, when you talk, it, they, they, they're two operative words, negative and partisanship. And so there are millions of Americans who are not partisans. They, they don't identify with either political party. But um, if you are somebody who identifies in one way ideologically, as I've, uh, I, you know, I've been conservative for, gosh, my entire adult life, um, then the argument a lot of people is that you have to be partisan, <laughs> that mm. the Republican Party is the vehicle for conservative ideas. And if you're not partisan, then you're actually uh, in effectively opposing conservative ideas. And so it, again, it's that with me or against me, but you're un absolutely right that there are millions of Americans who don't consider themselves to be partisan. Now, some of them actually are. They say they're independent, but they're sort of Republican-leaning independents or Democratic-leaning independents. Their actual behavior is quite partisan. So you you can't really look at polls that might say, well, 35% are Republican, 38% are Democrat, and you know the remainder, another almost third of the country are independent. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. They are either right-leaning or left-leaning. The actual percentage of people who don't have a lean at all is very is pretty small. It's pretty mm -hmm. small. Um, and I have a lean for sure, but uh, ideologically, but I don't have a lean in a partisan way. I don't lean towards Republicans any longer. I I I can't abide the current Republican Party. I think it's in many ways, uh, an instrument of actual deception, conspiracy, um, cruelty. Hmm. And uh, it's it's so I, I can't abide the modern republic, the contemporary Republican Party. So what would you say then is is kind of the uh, the place that we should be? What would be your recommendation if uh, you say, look, I, I'm a conservative, right? And so there's obviously going to be views that line up with what a Republican would view, but then, you know, making this distinction between Republicans and conservatives. How, how can we maybe separate that out to try to make some distinctions here for this conversation? Yeah. So, I, you know, one of the things that happens when you become a partisan, when you say, I am a Republican, 
is you you're kind of signing up for the team and so whatever what let's suppose you let's suppose uh if i were going to talk to uh, a committed christian and say why what are what do you care about what do you what do you care about a lot would say not as many as you might think <laughs> but a lot would say well i care about life i'm republican because republicans are the pro-life party and i also care about religious liberty not as much as i care about you know ending abortion but i care about life well what ends up happening is then you're enlisted into an effort to advance the interests of the republican party which are multifaceted and include an awful lot of policies that don't have much to do with life um because of life and so this is what tim caller calls package deal ethics that when you become a republican you you sign on to support a lot of things that you don't prioritize so that you can focus you can spend at least some time on the thing that you do prioritize and what ends up happening is that then people become essentially lawyers for one side or the other they're going to magnify the virtues of your side you're going to minimize the vices of your side you're often going to argue for policies you're not necessarily all that committed to because you know that if that policy fails it will be bad for the republicans and what's bad for the republicans is bad for your issue and so you become you end up often I, and i've known this and i've seen this an awful lot that people are committed to pro-life causes who are very partisan Republicans end up spending an awful lot of time not talking about life at all and not engaging on life at all. What they're engaging in and is, is the back and forth of the daily news cycle defending the Republican position or arguing for this or that Republican politician, sometimes even when they're just wrong, when they're just wrong. And look, I mean, I know one of the objections is, well, that's not me. I'm able to call balls and strikes. Do you know how much I heard of that from Christians going after into the 2016 election? Look, I'm voting for Trump as a last resort, but by golly, when he's president, I'm going to hold his feet to the fire. Yeah, right. Mm. That did not happen. We all know it didn't happen. Partisan Republican Christians did not hold Trump's feet to the fire. They didn't. So, so what is our responsibility then as Christians, uh, would you say, when... It seems like we are in a position where we have to pick maybe the better of two packages. And yeah, this package isn't good. And so you often hear Christians say, well, yeah, there's a lot I disagree with, but still it's better. And so that's why I'm going with it. Because no one, yeah. I mean, very few people, uh, I guess, and at least in my circle uh, that I'm speaking of, are like 100% fully and completely on board with everything Trump has ever said and done. Most people say, yeah, I don't like his tweets, but his policies. Uh, so is there what, yeah. what would you say about this idea? There's a better I mean, package sort of thing. Well, let's just say one thing. If somebody at this point is saying all that's wrong with Trump is his tweets, they're not engaged. They either don't know anything about what's happening in America. Or they're not engaging in good faith because they're <laughs> Trump. It's the problem with Trump is not just his tweets. I mean, that he's a rude tweeter. That's that's not a real argument anymore. But so I would say this. Look, you know, vote for you know, prayerfully consider your options, vote for the politician that, that you believe, look, here, here's my test. Th this is my test. And this is what I would urge a, a test that I would urge other people to adapt. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not even saying don't run for office with an R or a D by your name. I'm saying avoid the partisan mindset that identifies you as part of your identity as a Republican or a Democrat. But I think for any candidate, there should be a a two-part test that they pass. Part one is you should have a character that is commensurate with the office that you seek. 
The higher the office that you seek, the more, the higher character that politician should have. The character test, I think, is absolutely necessary. If a politician does not pass the character test, they should not, you should not vote for them, period. And that's not saying that someone needs to be perfect. Of course, nobody's going to be perfect. But I'm saying that there should be a minimum level of character that a Christian should seek in the person that they are hiring for a job. Because that's what you're doing when you're voting. You're saying, my vote to hire, it's like you're on a giant hiring committee. My vote to hire is for this person. And this person needs to have a certain level of character. But it's not only character, right? Policies matter. Character and policies. Leadership is a combination of character, temperament, policies. Character, competence. Competence is an aspect of character. So um, policies plus character equals vote. If you don't have policies that generally agree, not perfectly, and you don't have a character that's commensurate with the office, again, not perfect, but character plus policies equals a vote. You fail on the policies, you fail on the character, you don't get the vote. And we have to stop looking at each one of these votes as if it's the be-all, end-all, because what ends up happening is we say, oh, okay, David, here's where the negative partisanship kicks in. You say, well, that's a great, that's a great formula but don't you know how awful the Democrats are? They'll destroy America. So I have to compromise. I have to as an emergency. And so what ends up happening is by the millions, evangelicals will vote for a very, very low character person um, out of this emergency sense. And look, I mean, one of the ways to avoid having low character politicians is not to vote for them. Hmm. To send a message to a party that says, you know, look, we don't support you unconditionally. It's not the case that whatever you serve up to us or whoever you serve up to us is going to be acceptable. You know, even white evangelicals are arguably the most powerful faction in the Republican Party, one of the two great parties in the United States, extremely powerful political party, a dominant position in most states in the union. And white evangelicals who, and, and I emphasize the, it, it's not just evangelicals in general because uh, black evangelicals and uh, minority evangelicals are much more split in their politics than white evangelicals. But white evangelicals are a huge part of the GOP coalition. And, you know, look, if they said, we're not supporting low character politicians, you know what the GOP would nominate less of? Low character politicians. Um, and and so that's the problem we have. If If a party can count on you, whatever we serve up, you, that that's what you're going to vote for. As long as we can tick a few boxes in policy, then we're just going to get more of this. We're just going to get more of this, more of the same. Okay. So we, we clearly, I think, see here is, is I mean, this immediately, I mean, just saying this, I'm, I'm sure those listening and those watching are already, you know, their, their ears are peaking up, right? There's this, well, hold on a second. What about this? What about that? And there's, and because we're in disagreement, right? And there's like, well, we have all these different views on how things should function. And so what we recognize is that's true. Um, and then there is this division among us and how we believe the best way forward should be. Um, kind of a response to this that I want to clarify here at the beginning as then we kind of see how this works itself out through the rest of our conversation is this idea of like treating people with respect, tolerance. And, and we often cl claim this idea of tolerance. And I, you know, kind of j not jokingly, but in some seriousness titled this video, like why you probably fail the tolerance test. And yeah. um 
And so I want to kind of play this out and why I put that as 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 kind of the thumbnail on how this deals with tolerance. And so how would we define true tolerance? Yeah. So tolerance is not affection. Okay. So we, we, that's one thing that we have kind of messed up in our thinking about the term tolerance. Um, I get some of my inspiration for my discussion of tolerance in the book from a, a uh, essay by a guy who writes under the pseudonym Scott Alexander. And he he's a psychologist, I believe, living in a very blue area of the country. And he he will talk about tolerance to some of his friends and he'll he'll say, are you tolerant? And they say, well, of course I'm tolerant because, you know, I I have love and respect for people regardless of ethnicity, race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion, etc. And then he will say, well, what's wrong with them? And they said, what do you mean what's wrong with them? There's nothing wrong with them. And Scott responds, well, then what are you tolerating? Well, tolerance implies that there is something negative that you are to, uh, that you're overlooking, that you're accommodating, that you're respecting someone in spite of, not because of, or you're treating someone well in spite of, not because of. And so what has ended up happening is, you know, a lot of times we have, um, we have distorted this definition of tolerance and, and defined tolerance as affection. When tolerance is really a, a, a different, it implies something different, acceptance in spite of differences, in acceptance in spite of uh, error, in spite of some degree of animosity. And so um, when you have a very pluralistic country, extremely diverse country, tolerance properly defined is an indispensable virtue because we're never going to reach a point of view where we agree with everybody, <laughs> where, where, you know, we may love people in the sense that uh, they're, you know, created in the image of God and, and worthy of being uh, of the, the love that we share with people for Christians, but love does not imply uh, agreement. I mean, you know, we love members of our family and they can drive us crazy sometimes. There's tolerance we have to exercise even in our families. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that we have to reject domination, the, the will to dominate um, in uh, favor of accommodation, allowing people of many different belief systems to flourish alongside us in a very pluralistic, very diverse nation. So I, 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 an objection that I've heard, and, and I want to clarify, because I think there's some nuance that has to be brought out here, is allowing someone to flourish, uh, respecting them. Um, what about the things that we're not supposed to tolerate? Um, you know, the, the, there are truly evil that we are not supposed to tolerate, that we're not supposed to accommodate. What do we do in those cases where evil is being done? Well, you obviously don't accommodate lawfully uh, violations of your own rights and your, your, so for example, you don't tolerate theft, right? You don't accommodate right. theft. You don't accommodate murder. You don't accommodate, uh, uh, you know, violations of the bill of rights, you know, deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Um, you know, the, the constitution, the, the constitution spells out quite effectively a sort of a basic fundamental American social compact that says, um, these are the, the, these are the fundamental rights of an American citizen, you know, free exercise of religion, right to free speech, um, right to rights to freedom of association, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, 
right uh, to be free of unreasonable search and seizures, right to counsel, right to, I mean, you go all the way through this. These are fundamental rights. And if somebody, if the government is violating those rights, you should resist that leaf through lawful means. You resist it. You resist it vigorously. But you also have to get past the idea that everything that, and, and most people don't, aren't this simplistic, but there's always this temptation to say, if something is wrong, even if something is seriously wrong, immoral, we got to find a way to have the law deal with it. And this is where you begin to get into some of our big time culture war clashes, because there are people who are, you know, quite secular, uh, quite progressive, who who think that Christianity by itself, Christianity is just bigoted, especially traditional small Orthodox Christianity is bigoted. It's backwards. It's oppressive. And so they pursue it. You know, they, they, they seek to restrict the rights of religious communities. They seek, th uh, seek to restrict even the free speech rights of people of faith. And those are cases that I've litigated for much of my life. So you resist that. At the same time, you know, there's, uh, you know, often a tendency and there's been historically a tendency when religious people gain a large amount of power to use that power in a way um, that's counterproductive. Um, one of the most salient examples of that was prohibition. Um, prohibition was a religiously motivated social legal movement that ultimately banned the sale and of alcohol production, sale, use of alcohol in the United States of America. It was very shot through with religion. It was also a disastrous policy because not everything that you might have an objection to should be unlawful. And and a lot of what we and, and in fact, one of the things, one of the big problems we have in this country is we have too many criminal laws. It's one of the things that's led to the problem, the challenge of mass incarceration. We've got too many criminal laws. So we need to be thinking of not pressing our foot to the accelerator about banning things, but putting our feet on the brakes and say, you know, look, we need to rethink um, what we're, our approach to criminality in the United States of America. We need to maybe be narrowing the category of things that we will toss people in prison for. And it's important to point out that does not mean that it means, it does not mean legalizing things that should be illegal, right? It's, it's similar right. to a conversation I had a few weeks ago of just reevaluating the system we have and saying, Hey, did we go wrong? It's possible we went wrong. How can we improve the system that we have? Um, now I think it's important. And the reason I asked that question is that it seems like sometimes when you say, Hey, tolerance is the solution. You just need to tolerate people. You need to respect them. Then it's almost seems like we, it's almost like, okay, well then stop fighting. Uh, because I have to sit back and I have to just, you know, let people win. And so, hey, tolerate your governor shutting down your state or whatever it may be. That means, okay, I have to sit here and do nothing. And so I want to make sure we're on the same page. That's not what you're saying. Well, the defense Because you can fight, right, you can so, stand up for the defense of rights. And that's what you've done yeah, your whole career. So, yeah, absolutely. So if someone's trying to, so what my argument is against domination and for accommodation. If somebody is attempting to dominate you by removing your fundamental rights, you can fight to be accommodated. You can fight for your place, for your rights. And then moreover, once you have your liberty, you can use your liberty to try to persuade people to agree with you. You know, why in the a, a cultural a cultural clash doesn't have to be a matter of coercion. It can be a, a matter of persuasion. And so what ends up happening is, you know, a lot of people think, well, if I'm giving up on this domination idea, does that mean I'm going to let the other side run wild? No, what about persuading people? What about 
you know, there's a robust exchange of ideas that happens in a pluralistic society. It doesn't mean that everyone who's in the category of whether it's Muslim, Jewish, Christian, atheist, Buddhist, is then fixed there under a pluralistic framework and doesn't, there isn't movement from religious to secular, from secular to religious. All of these things, a pluralistic society has robust communities with porous walls. In other words, there's a lot of movement and persuasion and change that occurs in a pluralistic society. But the idea that the alternative to sort of seeking this dominant um, legal position is surrender is just dumb. <laughs> I mean, it's just dumb. I mean, let's yeah. just be honest. It's just dumb. A lot of our uh, discourse is like that. It's like, okay, wait a minute. So if you think I'm being too aggressive, you must believe we should surrender. <laughs> what? No, that there are different ways of uh, defending yourself. There are different ways of engaging in the public square. And the argument isn't between you know, the, this is one of the things that I've just dealt with for a long time. The argument isn't between like Trumpism and surrender. There is arguments between Trumpism and a different way of doing politics that defends your values. And so, yeah, a lot of that's just bad faith stuff. I mean, I, that's one of the things that you have to sort of realize in political debate is a lot of the questions you get aren't really questions. They're just, they're accusations. And, and so, it, you know, you have to sort of sort through that. Anytime somebody says, so what you're saying, if you're for pluralism is surrender. I just, I just don't take that seriously. It's a, it's a, um, it's not a, it's not a question. It's a talking point. <laughs> it's an, it's an accusation. Um, yeah. Because Pluralism requires vigilance to defend. Pluralism doesn't build itself. It has to be defended. Um, I mean, arguably, the one of the salient, one of the central acts of creation of the creation of a pluralistic America was a violent act, the shot heard around the world in Lexington Green. I mean, you know, there that was the a violent response to an attempt to dominate. Nobody would accuse the colonists of surrender, right? Yeah. And I, and I think what's so important is, is again, to kind of uh, figure out what's happening here in the sense, like I just taught my high school class in my worldview uh, of this idea of different kind of forms of pluralism. And one is saying like, hey, uh, either God exists or he doesn't. Um, we can agree to disagree. We can still respect each other, but we're going to discuss it because there is a truth. Uh, either Christianity is true or it's not. Um, those are two options. Let's let's have that debate. Let's discuss it. But I'm still going to treat you like a friend. I can still get along with you. I can still live next to you. Then there's the pluralism that says, well, you like the thought of Jesus. You don't. No one's right. Let's all just get along. Um, and, and that's not what we're saying here. It's not this. No one can have any truth. And so let's just all get along and live happy lives. And it's, you know, butterflies and rain. No, there's still truth. Yeah. We, we have to figure out the right way to live out, but recognizing that people have different views. And so what do we do with the people that have different views? And how do we have that debate in a, a healthy way, right? Jesus came with truth and love. How can we love people? Well, and it, we, you know, we have to know, we have to be able to understand the definition of words. I mean, tolerance is not affection, as we went, we just discussed. Um, but uh Pluralism is not relativism. Right. You know, so that's another that's another thing. Like a lot of people actually, I think a lot of um, a lot of confusion is people don't know what words mean. Pluralism is not relativism. It does not mean 
that if I believe in a pluralistic society, that I believe is the truth claims of Islam are just as valid as the truth claims of Christianity. I believe the claims of Islamic Americans, of Muslim Americans to religious liberty are just as valid as the claims of Christian Americans to religious liberty. Um, or I don't believe that arguments about, um, for example, abortion are equally correct. I'm pro-life. But I believe that both pro-choice and pro-life Americans have an equal claim to the availability of the First Amendment. And so that's not relativism. It's saying I'm going to engage in a moral argument in an atmosphere where I also respect your freedom to disagree with me. Um, and it also doesn't even mean you don't end up hopefully one day ending abortion in the United States of America. It just means that in the process of seeking to end abortion in the United States of America, you respect the fundamental rights of each person involved in the in the dispute, in the debate. So one thing that I think I see happening and that saddens me, um, and I actually just called it out on Facebook the other day, and, and one thing I think that your book addresses and the way that you speak addresses is this idea that we sometimes, as Christians, I've seen Christians do this, we ascribe subhuman characteristics to a person because they <laughs> hold a different political view or a different public policy view than we do. Um, I think Christianity clearly speaks into this of how we can stand up for like a pro-life movement or stand up for our political views at the same time, treat other individuals as a human being creating the image of God and not ascribing subhuman characteristics to them. And so how would you kind of speak into kind of this taking place as well as how as Christians we can stand up above this and live out the way that God has called us to live? You know, uh, one of the things, uh, we've had a lot of arguments uh, about decency and civility in politics. And, and some of those arguments center around, um, for example, if I'm decent, if I'm civil, do I lose? Does that make me lose? <laughs> um, and, you know, it's interesting. We need to reconnect, not just with the language of scriptural commands to bless those who persecute you, uh, love your enemies, but the context, okay, the context these were commands, so not tactics. It's not bless those who persecute you so long as it works to make them right. stop persecuting you. It's just bless those who persecute you, period. And the context was in an era, uh, an era where the persecution of Christians was incalculably worse than it is today in the United States of America. Like what American Christians go through, by and large, very few Christians by the numbers encounter a, a, even a form of legal persecution, legalized persecution, like an effort through the government to censor them. Very few. Most Christians will go their entire lives without an effort by the government to censor them or to punish them. Fast, fast, fast majority. Um, we do face some social social stigma that we didn't used to face and, and some extreme circumstances, again, very rare employment action. Um, but that's not by the standard. A first century Christian would parachute into the United States of America, look at all the angst that Christians feel right now in this country and go, what on earth? We were told to bless those who persecute you, to love your enemies when they were killing us, when they were throwing us into prison. Now, that didn't mean don't share the gospel. Obviously, Paul, Peter, they all shared the gospel in, in defiance of legal authorities. But... Look, I mean, 
we sit there and we we look at the the plight of the modern American Christian, and yeah, it's a little it's a little bit worse than it was for Christians in some communities than it was ten years ago, for example. And we start to question like basic decency and civility that it's somehow inadequate for the times. What on earth? I mean, a first century Christian would be stunned, would be amazed at some of the debates that they hear uh, right now between and amongst Christians about you know these such basic verses. And by the way, by the way. I'd say the number of Christians who believe that I should not hate my enemies, off the charts high, off the charts high. But the number of Christians who seem by their actions believe that you can hire somebody to hate your enemies for you, and that's okay, uh, seems to be pretty high, as evidenced by the decision to hire Donald Trump, who unquestionably really hates his enemies. And I think it even applies more of just the way that we speak about people. And, it, and I think that the, and I've talked about this on my show, and it's what I hold to very strongly is that we often say, well, yeah, I can call people in power bad names and I can call them out because um, I can call them a piece of trash or whatever, because, hey, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. Uh, the issue, though, <laughs> is that Jesus is God. He is directly and accurately with good intentions uh, being able to call out what is true. Um, and I, I ask myself the question, when I call someone a piece of trash, am I really doing that out of genuine love? Um, for me, no. And I highly doubt others can in the way that we are very quick to label people who are different than us. Um, I don't think that we do it as good intentioned as we often think that we do. I, I got to confess to something too, with some embarrassment. Um, I can remember years ago writing a piece where I was talking about, you know, we got to be really careful about these calls for civility because Jesus, there were times when Jesus just like, I mean, he grabbed the whip and he, you know, cleared the temple. He called the Pharisees hip hypocrites. He, you know, they're whitewashed tombs. Um, you know, the poison of asps is on your, I mean, there's all kinds of very aggressive language from Jesus. And there's also some pretty aggressive language from prophets in, in uh, Scripture as well. But, you know, these prophets and Jesus, now this is going to be the understatement of the century, had some advantages over me. <laughs> um, you know, Jesus, sinless, is able to peer into the hearts of men to see who they really are. Um, and me, sinful, cannot peer into the hearts of men and cannot see who they really are. Uh, so for one thing, the assessment that Jesus makes of another person, you can take to the bank. The assessment I make of another person, mm, not so much. And so what we often end up doing is say, rather than adopting, responding to Jesus's commands of his followers, some people will try to follow the actions of Jesus, son of God, <laughs> when they do not have the same insights and the same pure heart. And it's a category error. So when we look at, um, I think the divisiveness, getting back to this, and then I wanna kinda of come back to the tolerance here at the end and the response that I think that we should have. Um, this chart, uh, you kind of bring this up in your book, but we, we look at the division of our country. And so here's an example. So this is 1994. This is from the Pew Research website. Uh, 1994, you see a medium Republican, medium Democrat. Um, as Very you close. begin, 
yeah, very close, kind of towards the mix. Uh, 1999, kind of very similar. There's a slight shift a little bit more to the liberal side. Uh, then we kind of, you know, Republicans move over a little bit more there. Uh, but really, then you, you, you move forward and the divide starts to happen. The divide happens a little bit more. 2015 stays about the same. And then 17, the divide happens even more. And so we see mm -hmm. a difference. And so is this kind of what you're talking about? And I'd love for you to kind of speak into this of from 94 to 2017, just after Trump was elected, uh, we yeah. see this divide. Is that what we're talking about here as this? We're that, just we're uh, very further ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a va graphical representation of our increasing alienation from each other. And what's interesting, if you go back to 94, it's the old bell curve like. 94, it looks like when most people think of, okay, most people are in the middle. That's 94. That's sort of the world that I grew up in where moderation was sort of the norm, sort of political moderation was the norm. You go to 2017 and it goes from the bell to more like a U where most people are on the edges or much, people are much more towards the extreme side. Now, not totally, it's not a complete U, but it's it's fundamentally changed. And so this is also why people look at the other side as such a threat because they're further apart from each other than they used to be. You know, people aren't making up in their minds that there are differences between Republican and Democrat. What they often do is exaggerate the differences or exaggerate the power of their op opponents, the ability of their opponent to implement their agendas. But the differences are are real. And this is one of the reasons why people are so tempted to compromise their moral values to prevent the other side from attaining power or to violate some moral norms to keep the other side from attaining power is that is that gap. Now, there's also something I think is interesting in this is that and again, this is in my textbook that I teach my high school students. But it, we, it, when we cover the ethics of technology, we talk about how technology actually hurts us. And one of the points that is brings up in our book is that technology makes us more narrow minded. We only watch programs that directly relate to our interests. We only communicate with people we want to talk to. If you don't want to talk to someone, you can block them, right? We have this idea of cancel culture, you know, is, hey, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't like your ideas, I cancel you. And, you know, we can argue which side does that more, but I think we both do it to a, to a degree uh, of where we quickly label someone as something and then write them off rather than uh, in that way, uh, trying to treat them and have conversations. Um, and you make the point all, as well in your book that the more media we consume, often the more wrong we are about political opponents. And there's a study that you, you yeah. show that talks about this. What is this idea that the more media we consume, often the more wrong we become about the other side? Yeah, so what ends up happening is the more political media we consume, the more extreme we think our opponents are. So if you go back to that chart, yeah, our political opponents are moving in a direction right and left, but we tend to think they're further down the road than they really are, okay? Hmm. So... You know what we saw an example um, in the 2020 election where an awful lot of Republicans were equating the Democrats with Antifa, when the reality is like most of the Antifa folks hate both the Republicans and the Democrats. They think you know mainstream politics is ludicrous and absurd, and they hated Joe Biden and they hated Joe Donald Trump. So, so a lot of Republicans were believing that. The Democratic Party is Antifa. Well, the Democratic Party is more to the left than it was in 2016, say, or 20, 2012. But it's not Antifa. <laughs> it's not anywhere close to Antifa. And so and similarly, you know, uh, people on the left will look at things like 
entities like the Proud Boys. And they'll say that, wow, you know, there's Trumpism right there. When there are millions and millions and millions of law-abiding Trump voters who would abhor and despise the Proud Boys and, and what they stand for. And so um, there is a tendency to sort of take the radicals on the other side in partisan media. Because remember, partisan media is always about being a lawyer for your team. And a lot of us consume a lot of partisan media. So partisan media is always going to highlight the worst elements of the opponents, rarely going to highlight the good elements of the opponents, and cast the worst elements of your opponents as the true expression of their view. And so this is how you get to a phenomenon that you see all the time, which is Democrats will say, I mean, Republicans will say, you know, you know who really is the Democratic Party is the squad. The squad is really the Democratic Party. And a whole bunch of Democrats go, no, it's not. If the squad was really the Democratic Party, we would have voted for the squad's favorite presidential candidate, but we didn't. We voted for Joe Biden, who's not the squad at all. He's so different from the squad that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, if we didn't have a two-party system, I wouldn't even be in the same party as Joe Biden. So, and then, but then, and so the, the Democrats are offended, millions of Democrats are offended that you say, I'm going to take, you know, the squad and make them representative of the whole party. They're offended by that. But then they'll turn around and they'll say, Matt Gates is the Republican Party. Now, the Republicans kind of have a challenge right now in that a Donald Trump is arguably in, in some ways one of the most extreme personalities in all of American politics. And he kind of is the Republican Party right now. But, you know, what you'll often see is that there are... Uh, you know, even on 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 the left, you'll you'll highlight individuals on the right who are particularly extremist. Ignore those who are not. Uh, but again, as I said, the Republican Party has a real challenge right now in that its leading figure, the president of the United States, is engaged in some behavior that we've never really seen on the public stage in our lifetimes. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of hard to say, hey, don't judge us by the president. <laughs> <laughs> that's harder than saying, hey, don't judge us by a freshman Congress congressperson from, you know, Minneapolis or Queens. Hmm. Now, so one thing that, you know, clearly is, is there's a, a divide on, on what we, how we view our president, how we view politics and, and where we stand as far as that spectrum that we just saw in the graph. Uh, you also talk about this idea in your book about how we're dividing geographically and how this is creating a problem as far as secession. And so my first question, I guess, to this is like, how does this go along with that? Uh, and then uh, how how or how are we dividing geographically? And then why is that a problem? Why is it a problem that we yeah. like living around people that we agree with? It it makes life a little bit more civil in, in some sense. Well, it's super normal to want to live around people that you like and agree with you. I mean, <laughs> that's a very basic sort of human element of human nature. I mean, you don't like to feel like a fish out of water, right? And so you're going to, to the extent that you're mobile and you have a choice, not everyone is mobile, not everyone has a choice, um, you're going to live where you, you feel comfortable. The problem that occurs is that while we're becoming, uh, we're clustering with people of like mind, in theory, there's a theory that says, hey, even if we become more extreme, we're not necessarily going to dislike the other side. Kind of like, you know, hey, we don't we don't look at developments in like Toronto, Canada and say, hey, those Canadians are really different from us. I hate them. <laughs> we say the Canadians are different. 
And it's kind of cool to visit in Toronto. I'm glad I don't live there, but it's kind of cool to visit. Instead, we're looking at the way our different Americans are in different communities and saying, I really don't like these people. And why is that? Because we feel like the people in different communities are wanting to impose often their vision of the good life, their vision of the best political life on us. In other words, we don't trust that we can let California be California or let Tennessee be Tennessee. People from California feel like a GOP government is wanting to turn their state into Tennessee, and people from Tennessee feel like a Democratic government would want to turn their state into something like California. And that builds up a lot of animosity. And the other thing about like when we get together with people of like mind is there's this thing that kicks in called the law of group polarization. It's a, a concept articulated by Cass Sunstein in 1999. And it basically means that when people of like mind gather, they tend to get more extreme. And so let's say you, you and I both oppose gun control. Let's just say that. And we talk about, we spend a whole YouTube talking about how much we don't like gun control. Well, at the end of that YouTube, we're going to be more convinced of our position, not less convinced. Or think of it like this. If you go to a really good Bible study, there's not many people who leave a really good Bible study loving Jesus less. It makes you more committed. It encourages you. And so when you're around people of like mind, you get more committed. You get encouraged. And, and you often don't even hear the right good expression of opposing side points of view. So you will often begin to sort of forget that reasonable people can disagree with me because everyone you're around is reinforcing the rightness of your position. So we're clustering with people of like mind. We're getting more extreme as your chart shows and we're growing not just in extremism, but also in animosity. That's the key that makes this untenable. It's growing in animosity even as we grow apart politically. Now, are you saying that everyone is becoming more extreme because I feel like there's a lot of people I mean even we could kind of go back to the chart and I think this is helpful because there's people that say well no hold on even with the line moving left or right uh, I'm still kind of sitting towards the middle right so I want to be clear because it's not trying you're not trying to convince all Republicans or are you that they are all more extreme and Democrats are also more extreme Um, or is it kind of this median that we kind of see even though there are maybe people in the middle trying to trying to still have good conversations and respect for each other. Well, certainly there are people on across the whole spectrum trying to have good conversations. Because one thing I'm not arguing for is that everyone to become moderate. Because that's another way of saying, I'm going to end division by everybody agreeing. I'm not a moderate. You know, if you go through issue after issue, I'm not a moderate. I'm conservative. But what I'm saying is that we have to find a way where that whole... It's not that we're trying to all come together in the middle. We're trying to find a way where we can live together even as we grow more separate and apart in our belief systems. Because that's just going to keep happening. Yeah. There is no no real no realistic per prospect on the horizon for us all agree. If there was a realistic prospect on the horizon for us all agree, we wouldn't even be having this YouTube. We'd be having a very different one talking about, "Man, I can't wait uh for this Swearing in of a president that received 65% of the vote and um, it's a new dawning of American unit, blah, blah, blah. Those days are not happening. (laughs) Those days are, they might happen sometime in the future, but we have a profound level of deep disagreement in the country. And so the question is not, how can we all agree? That's Mm, not the question. The question is, how can we live together? in a reasonable, not utopian, but reasonable degree of peace and harmony and across very big differences. 
And the answer is not to say shed to shed those differences. The, the, right. We have to, that's pluralism is about living across differences. It is not about shedding differences. That's good. So the question came in on Instagram here and it says, um, uh, our country has been divided so many times in the 1770s and 80s, the 1850s and 60s, 1930s and 40s, the 60s, and now. Uh, it seems like we always heal ourselves, or is it different now? Well, we don't always heal ourselves. Um, you know, uh, arguably, I would say from, eight, so we had a civil war from 1861 to 1865. Then, we had a sort of soft secession of the Southern states as Reconstruction failed, where there was almost like a country within a country where black Americans just fundamentally did not have the same rights as they had in other parts of the country. There was a, almost like a um, remnant Confederate substate that existed within our country until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So we don't always heal. Uh, we, we really don't. Um, now, there are other challenges that we've had where, where we we do heal. Well, we, we have helped healed after civil war to a great degree, but after a lot of, of terrible wounds, um, I, the way I'd look at it is, yeah, we've overcome an awful lot of challenges, but you have to recognize the challenge to overcome it. It doesn't happen just through sheer inertia. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with the book is I wanted to highlight, we've got a challenge and the challenge isn't that um, how can we get Republicans to win or how can we get Democrats to win? It's how do we deal with deep seated division in this country that's going that could threaten our very unity? And we've dealt with that before. We've gotten through it before and then we've not gotten through it. It had to be settled on the battlefield. Um, and what I want to say is we need to get to we we don't want to be in a position where we're facing that kind of crisis. We have to acknowledge what's happening and take steps to avoid the crisis before it occurs. So before we kind of jump into kind of taking steps to uh, fix this crisis, a question did come in uh, in the live chat of uh, what is your view on the Equality Act and if that should be passed? Uh, well, no, it should not be passed. I don't think I for one thing, um, the Equality Act as written contradicts what would strip religious liberty protections arguably beyond what the Constitution permits. So um, and also partly through Supreme Court jurisprudence, the core of the Equality Act, a big core of it's already law. So what the Equality Act does would essentially um, amend employment laws, for example, to include just uh, non-discrimination provisions over on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It would repeal or um, hold, it would repeal the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to the extent that anything from RIFRA would con conflict with the Equality Act, which would be a blow to religious liberty. But the Supreme Court in a series of cases has said, look, Title VII, existing non-discrimination law, includes protections for people on the basis of, uh, for LGBT Americans on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. So already the big core of the Equality Act is now law in the U.S. from coast to coast. And also the Supreme Court has very limited the impact and the reach of that non-discrimination law into religious organizations far beyond the way the Equality Act does. So the Equality Act, if it was going to be passed, almost immediately would be redundant in most of its respects and part of its respects would be unconstitutional. <laughs> and so um, is there a different kind of law, a, a different kind of statu statute that could remedy those defects? Perhaps. Um, but the Equality Act as written is 
in the main redundant and where it's not redundant, it's partly unconstitutional. That's very helpful. Thank you for answering that. Um, so as we kind of get into this, uh, you know, the, at the beginning, we talked about this idea of tolerance. And so um, who do you think uh, actually passes the tolerance test of truly respecting individuals with whom they disagree? Oh, lots of people do. I mean, lots of individuals do. Um, would I say that, you know, that, um, let, let me put it like this way. We have both right and left are, have, are locked in their own sort of civil wars between intolerant elements. Um, you know, so you have cancel culture on the left. You have a lot of the rising intolerant new right on the right that is seeking to dispute liberalism itself, classical liberalism itself, attacking the very foundations of the American founding. I was involved in a ton of those debates in 2019. And so, and you have an enormous around, amount of intolerance and cancel culture around opposition to Donald Trump, just enormous. Um, everything that you can look at, if you're a conservative, that you go snowflakes, cancel culture about the left, that exists on the right when you oppose Donald Trump. People try to get you fired. People try to, uh, there are threats. There is a, are acts of intimidation. There's online shame campaigns. It's all there. And so both right and left have a problem with intolerance. And there are a strong cohort of very brave, valiant, tolerant people also on both the right and the left who are opposing that. And so both sides are kind of locked in the civil war over tolerance itself, over classical liberalism itself. And the outcome is not assured. <laughs> but I can tell you this, if the intolerant elements win on both sides, we're in a world of trouble in this country. Hmm. And so kind of looking at then how we, we deal with this um, is this idea of the image of God, I think, is so huge in Christianity and, and how radically this can shape us as we move forward in having conversations with people who we fundamentally and very fervently disagree. Uh, how can we better see people as image bearers uh, in the conversation? What does this look like in a day-to-day -day conversation with someone who we go, everything you said is wrong, I disagree. How do we treat them as image bearers? Well, I think, when, I think step one, step one, humility, step one, because a, an enormous amount of our contempt for our opponents is centered around an inordinate confidence in the rightness of our own, at the, in our own wisdom and intelligence and the rightness of our position. Um, Micah 6, 8, a powerful verse. What does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. If you reverse that order and you say, walk, thinking about walking humbly in the course of political uh, dispute, you know, I've been around a lot of political and legal battles for a long time, whether it's over foreign policy, whether it's over race and racism in the U.S., whether it's over life, uh, pro-life, whether it's over the con First Amendment, and even if you even if you are if you know you're right on the ultimate aim, the ultimate thing that you're uh, seeking to achieve, like I'm very I'm very confident that a just society protects life from conception until natural death. I think that I'm very confident that that is a a just. Uh, a just position. Um, well, then I also know that, that how to get from A to B is not obvious. How to achieve those goals, are that's not obvious. And there's an enormous amount of room for disagreement. I also know that people who 
on tactics and strategy of how to get to A to B. I also know that people who disagree with me on life issues can be correct about many other things. And, and if I don't approach them with humility, I will often not learn things that I need to learn or not know or understand things that I need to know or understand that they might know on many topics that I don't. And but so what I think a lot of the foundation for animosity is arrogance. You come in and you not only are totally convinced that you're right, you can't even see how another human being can disagree with you, how a person in good faith can come to an op uh, opposite conclusion. And a lot of that is just sheer arrogance. So one of the first things that I do when I'm talking to Christians about politics and talking about a theology of engaging in politics it's not just finding the issue set and pursuing the issues. It's also a way of existing and being in the political world. And one of the things you have to realize, two words, it's complicated. It's complicated. This is hard stuff. It's really hard. You have to walk into this with humility. You have to. If you're walking into this with arrogance, you're probably wrong. You're probably wrong because your arrogance is actually probably going to insulate you against constructive critique or insulate you against contrary information that happens to be true. This stuff is hard. And often the sense of self-righteousness is directly proportional to the difficulty of the challenge. So like, you know, there's a huge amount of self-righteousness around race arguments when we should be walking into the race arguments with a posture of extreme humility because unwinding the effects of 345 years of legal discrimination defended by violence is hard and complicated. We should walk into that challenge with humility. Instead, we're just sitting there telling everybody what to think about a situation that's almost impossibly complex. And I think that one thing I talk about a lot on the show that I think relates to this is the idea of asking questions uh, of maybe the other yeah. person is disagreeing with you or maybe you misunderstand their point and, and, and being humble enough to say, wait, can you explain your view rather than assuming we already know what their view is, is a great way to show respect to someone with whom we disagree. Uh, one last thing, if I could ask you before we uh, end our time together is, is that I think that sometimes Christians will go, well, no, but I have to stand up for the truth. And so how, how is it that sometimes standing up for what is true can, can lead to us? Is that arrogant of saying, no, this is true and I will defend it? Let me, uh, let me say this. Sometimes you don't know what's true. <laughs> so this is, this is, this is a get, actually gets to a core area. Now, look, again, I'll say, for example, to take an easy issue for me, it is right to stand up for the rights of the unborn. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. There's a lot of ambiguity as to the best way to do it, right? There's a lot of ambiguity as to the best way to end abortion in the United States. It's hard. If somebody had figured this thing out and it was going to be effective, it'd be done. It'd be done. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. Um, but a lot of times what I see people doing is standing, and I see this all the time in issue areas that I know a lot about and I've studied a lot. I'll see someone standing up for truth and they're wrong. <laughs> they're standing up for something that's not true. <laughs> and so one of the things that I urge people to do is read the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. Don't, we do this all the time. There's a new, let, let's take a super hot button issue, critical race theory, super hot button, you know, 
presidents of Southern Baptist seminaries just, you know, issued statements condemning critical race theory. Lots of Christians say, don't tell me, I don't want to hear any critical race theory. And a lot of Christians don't have any clue what it is. How many Christians who have no clue what critical race theory is immediately tried to find out what it was from by uh, seeing what their favorite pastor said about it, as opposed to what critical race theorists have said. Okay. In other words, learn a, an idea from the idea's proponents, not from the opponents. So go and learn an idea, get the idea straight from the horse's mouth, and then go and read what people say that disagrees. And you can start to have a really an, sort of an intelligent, informed discussion about it. If only thing you learn about an idea is from people who critique the idea, you don't know the idea. Hmm. You don't know the idea. Now, when I say go learn an idea from the people who advance it, that's not saying go agree with them. It's not saying that at all. I disagree with many elements of critical race theory, for example. I've written about this, but I also find elements of it that are useful as diagnostic tools and understanding our culture. But I, I disagree with a lot of it. Um, but my my core contention is do not believe you're standing up for the, that you know what's true unless you you're fully informed. And even when you're fully informed, you'll often still learn new things. And so one of the ways to become informed is to learn about an idea from an advocate of the idea, not from a critic of the idea. Read the critic. Yeah. You know, that's why a jury hears from the prosecution and the defense. You know, not just the prosecution or not that just is the so defense. Yeah, that is so helpful. Well, David, I know uh, we ran out of time so quickly. I know there are many more issues that we could have discussed and, and ways in which we could have flushed more ideas out. But I thank you just for this initial conversation of trying to help us see, like, how do we, in my view, what my goal was, is how do we look at individuals as the person? We can disagree with ideas, but how do we view the person? And do we show them respect and dignity, even when we are trying very, sometimes, you know, sometimes very, we're trying a lot, very hard to convince them of something and to stop them, maybe because it's evil, but how do we view them as an individual person made in the image of God? So David, thank you so much for coming on and helping us uh, think about this issue. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. And I have a link to all of David's information below uh, where he writes in his book and, and his social media and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, just so you're aware, I want to make sure you guys know next week, I'm going to attempt my first call in show. And so you can be looking for more information for that, whether it's on social media or even in the community tab here on YouTube uh, to have you be able to call in and have a conversation with me. And so we're going to test that out as my last show of the year. And so with that, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the day. Again, the goal, how can we as Christians faithfully live out in this culture? applying the teachings of Christianity that we are image bearers created in the image of God and we are called to stand up for the truth absolutely but do so with love and respect so hopefully this has challenged you to think deeply about this issue continue to think deeply about God and Jesus and Christianity because they are worth thinking about have a wonderful rest of your day guys and bye I just ask you won't hesitate to follow your love I'm my